0: Verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Anamite, Ammonite, or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call down a curse on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, i have returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing with Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Badiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God, and its services. Amen.
1: When did you last read Nehemiah? (laughs) It's a fantastic story, and Um, It goes on from from Ezra, the the passage before. You know, there are some great characters uh, in the Old Testament, inspiring characters, quite challenging characters, and they were great people of faith, great people of faith. If you look in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you'll find that the writer there has listed uh, a whole lot of them. Noah, Abraham, Moses and so on but there are two names that are actually missing, Ezra and Nehemiah they too were great, great people of faith in fact we know, don't we, don't we, we've just read from one of them that they had two Old Testament books devoted to them they were around at the time of the children of Israel's Uh, Babylonian exile, which we've just heard. That was later taken over by the uh, Persian Empire around 600 BC. Nebuchadnezzar had had sacked Jerusalem in 587 BC and carried off the people uh, to Babylon. And soon Cyrus, Cyrus of Persia, would take over. Cyrus was, in many respects, unlike his predecessor, um, he preferred to leave his subjects uh, to their own lands and he set about restoring them to go back to their native, native countries. So we read this passage uh, in the beginning of Ezra. Actually, it's repeated at the uh, end of the second chapter of the uh, uh, second book of Chronicles. Ezra 1, verses 2 to 4. This is what Cyrus the king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Royal approval there for the children of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And of course he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Jew. You know, there are no limits to who uh, God can use in fulfilling his purposes. Now skip forward about a 100 years, and Artaxerxes is now uh, king. Nehemiah is on the scene this time, and not only was he working within the uh, royal household, but he had risen to become the king's cupbearer this was a very important and uh, responsible job that he had there was also always a fear that the king would be uh, killed murdered quite often through through poisoning uh, and so among the responsibilities that Nehemiah had was to see to it that 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 wouldn't happen he'd be a highly trusted member uh, of the king's court the inner the inner circle Some 20 years into Artaxerxes' reign, he noticed that Nehemiah seemed seemed rather distracted, downcast. We read that in Nehemiah chapter 2. So he asked him, what was was troubling him? News had had reached Nehemiah that things were not good back uh, in his homeland for those who'd returned from exile. Security. Security was non-existent. The city gates and the city walls were in disrepair. And Nehemiah was really quite distraught about this. We read this in the opening chapter of his book. A book, incidentally, which in many respects is is a bit like a a personal memoir of uh, Nehemiah's life and, and his exploits. This is what he said. Nehemiah says this in Nehemiah 1 and verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Clearly, Nehemiah was very much a man of prayer. A long, detailed prayer here to God that we read in in chapter 1 about the situation that the children of Israel were in. And then there's an arrow prayer when the king asked Nehemiah what he wants. We read that in chapter 2 and verse 4. Nehemiah's response was, then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. I love that phrase. I prayed, I, I prayed to the God of heaven and then I answered the king. You know, Nehemiah's prayers seem to me almost a masterclass in how to pray. A detailed prayer, an arrow prayer. You know, perhaps more than anything else, there's an intimacy. An intimacy in Nehemiah's relationship with his heavenly father, with God. Perhaps there's a lesson there for each one of us. So Nehemiah is allowed to return to Jerusalem with the important responsibility of organising the rebuilding of the city walls and to re-establish its security. A task which we read was completed in the extraordinary time of 52 days. 52 days. But, you know, as important as national security was for the children of Israel, the need for the restoration of their religious duties and their relationship with God as his people, the chosen people, you know, that was even more crucial. In the journey towards this restoration, the priest, the priest Ezra, brings the word of God, the scriptures that had been missing from their lives for ages, And he formally uh, reads it to them. And the outcome, the outcome is thrilling. You read it in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. They they started really rejoicing when they heard the word of God being read. But so often, uh, on his visits back to Jerusalem, he finds the children of Israel being unfaithful uh, to God. And we picked the story up, actually, in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 13. Nehemiah still had responsibilities uh, to the king of Babylon. So although Artaxerxes had allowed him to return to Jerusalem, uh, on more than one occasion actually, he does return, he returns to his responsible position in the king's household. Later, he was allowed to go back yet again. But, you know, so often on his visits back to Jerusalem, he still finds the children of Israel being unfaithful, unfaithful to God. You know, one of the things, and I know there's one or two teachers in the, uh, 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 the congregation this morning, but one of the things that teachers have to face from time to time is dealing with the results that might occur when they're called away from their class for a time. You know usually when that happens um, the students are told to get on with some appropriate work or, or to read something that's equally appropriate. No doubt when the teachers leave they're aware that such uh, instructions won't be followed uh, to the letter. No sooner as the teacher left than chatter and worse follows, or have things changed since my days at school? <laughs> I remember one notable occasion when I was at school um, and I won't uh, uh, really dwell on it too much but uh, it wasn't actually during, a, 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 it was a, a, an actual break in the, the lesson time in the session that we were having in the uh, physics laboratory uh, we were left, left to our own devices and, as I've said, obviously expected to be acting in a responsible manner. <laughs> some, some hope it pains me to confess. Um, I don't think you're going to believe this, but uh, it did actually happen. Um, a few of us decided to have a game of cricket. Um, someone had a tennis ball uh, and we improvised for a bat we found a, a large uh, cardboard uh, tube that we used. It does sound quite extraordinary, doesn't it? And irresponsible, which of course it, it was. Bearing in mind as well the expensive equipment that was uh, uh, around, the, uh, around the, the room, the laboratory. Anyway, we used the central aisle as the, uh, as the pitch and the first ball was bowled. And I can't remember, but I may have been the bowler. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was a good delivery and uh, it deceived the batsman. Unfortunately, we didn't have a wicket keeper. Um, so the ball flew past the batsman and su- suddenly everything went into slow motion as the ball continued on its flight down the laboratory through the door to the preparation room and demolished with excess precision a piece of glass equipment with, with a terrible clatter Needless to say, silence descended uh, on the laboratory for the first time since the teacher had left I won't uh, relate to you the outcome or the repercussions of all this uh, in fact I think to some degree I suffer from um, uh, guilt amnesia um, but uh, it just proves the truth that uh, your sins will find you out you know I can imagine if our old physics master uh, was familiar with the bible then I think he would have empathised with Nehemiah in the passage we've just read things didn't go completely smoothly did it for them true to form. The children of Israel reverted to type after Nehemiah left to return to Persia they forgot they forgot all about their religious duties their faithfulness to God then as Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem after his trip back to King Artaxerxes he finds no small trouble in the Jerusalem classroom Nehemiah had been with the children of Israel for twelve years as he directed the real rebuilding of the walls and the reestablishing of the community of God's people. But with the work complete, he needed to resume his responsibilities and, and to return, return to the king, who'd been really quite gracious to let him go to Jerusalem in the first place. And what an eventful twelve years it had been against great opposition. The walls had been rebuilt and a real community was being re-established in order and discipline. So the religious life and the worship of God became part and parcel of their lives again. God was honoured as they listened intently to the reading of God's word, the book of the law by the priest Ezra. And as a result, the people made sincere pledges to God There was much celebration at the dedication of the wall. in chapter 12 we read this verse 43 on that day they offered great sacrifices rejoicing because god had given them great joy the women and children also rejoiced the sound of rejoicing in jerusalem could be heard far away that's lovely isn't it the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away and yet despite all that joy All the acknowledgement of God's goodness to them. All their heartfelt worship to him. As Nehemiah leaves them for a while, they seem to be gradually slipping back. Compromise in various forms begins to creep in. The teachers out of the room. Very sad. Very sad. So what do we find here at the beginning of chapter 13 that we've just had read? They seem once again to be mixing with those nations that would seduce them away from the one true god the ammonites and the moabites mentioned here are in many respects typical of those nations the reference to Balaam is fascinating it's worth just pondering on that for for a moment after after the exodus as the children of israel wandered through the wilderness uh, to the increasing alarm of nearby nations so balak king of Moab rather than making peaceful overtures to them uh, sends to the diviner and soothsayer Balaam and for a, a really quite a rich fee uh, asks him to call a curse down on God's people and read all about it it's in Numbers 22 through to 24 there's the famous story of Balaam's donkey and Balaam's subsequent encounter with God and the result is that he blesses the Israelites rather than curses them. In Deuteronomy, there's a commentary on this incident with Balaam and Balak, which may be what was read to Nehemiah's people. The phrasing in Deuteronomy is very similar to what we have in chapter 13 uh, of Nehemiah. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 6. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, as they hired Balaam, son of Beor, Bethel, Beor from Pethor, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. I left out a very significant phrase from that reading, which is also missing from the Nehemiah passage. Let me read verse uh, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 5 again. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing. Because the Lord your God loves you. Because the Lord your God loves you. You know, one thing we can always be sure of is that God loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He loved the children of Israel, of Moses' time, despite the numerous rebellions and and unfaithfulness. And he loved the children of Israel of Nehemiah's and Ezra's time, again, despite all their failures. You know, a lot of songs have been written extolling our love for God. But, you know, such love, sadly, is so often shallow, transitory and easily deflected. How different is God's love for us? The Psalms regularly extol it, don't they? As the opening verses of Psalm 33 put it, the earth is full of of his unfailing love. Our very existence, the beautiful world we occupy, is all due to God's unfailing love. Some years ago we had a church text uh, from Psalm 136 and, and verse 1. Give ten- thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. That psalm has 26 verses. And that phrase, his love endures forever, is repeated in each verse 26 times. You know, the children of Israel experience God's love towards them time and time and time again even curses were turned to blessings I wonder is there a lesson there of encouragement and assurance for us in our lives in our experience God's unfailing love his love endures forever so the Israelites of Nehemiah's time hear this account this instruction from God Uh, From the book of Moses, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Stark and uncompromising, as it might appear to our ears, they obey. For the children of Israel, God's people, compromise with the surrounding nations, with its serious religious Uh, implications must be no more verse 4 of Nehemiah 13 introduces another serious problem uh, for Nehemiah this time not just the people at large forgetting their responsibilities towards God but here right at the centre of their religious life at the top of the religious leadership the high priest was being unfaithful was compromising was not just being seduced into compromise, but it seems initiating it himself. Tobiah, an Ammonite, along with Sambalat and Geshon, had been a thorn in the side of Nehemiah uh, for a long time. They used every trick in the trade uh, to prevent the wall being built. And yet here he was again. Tobiah's now closely associated with the high priest, as verse 4 puts it. What scandalous compromise we see here in verse 5. Tobias given residence right at the nerve centre of Jerusalem as one commentator uh, has put it. The building used for the storing of such important religious articles and, and activities. They're all removed as Tobias' belongings are brought in for him to settle there in some comfort. You know, the more I pondered this, the more amazed I became At the end of chapter 12, at the dedication of the wall, we read about the organising of this storeroom. Back in chapter 10, as the instructions for this are given, we read how the Israelites, and in particular the leaders, made solemn pledges to faithfully honour their religious duties. Chapter 10 ends with these words, We will not neglect the house of our God. How could Eliashib, the high priest, have behaved in this way? You know, it almost beggars belief, doesn't it? But he did. You know, I'm a sucker uh, for the jokes in Christmas crackers. Um, The the cornier, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I found this in one several years ago. Piano tuner. I've come to tune your piano. Piano player. But I didn't send for you. Piano tuner, no, your neighbours did. <laughs> you know, compromise nearly always remains unchecked by those who are guilty of it. We don't recognise when we're out of tune with the faith that we espouse. And you know, compromise has an uncanny knack of generating its own momentum. Momentum. The knock-on effect of Eliashib's actions was quite devastating. We find those that would lead the religious observance of the people, the Levites and and the singers, left their posts, gone back to their own homes and fields. Maybe they were not getting the tithes that were were rightly theirs. They needed uh, to earn their own living, to go back to their own lands. Or maybe, maybe, because of the example of Eliashib, Uh, behaviour, they themselves decided to uh, desert their responsibilities. Nehemiah seems to blame the officials in verse 11. And in an echo of the Israelites' promise in chapter 10, he cries out, Why is the house of God neglected? Why is the house of God neglected? I wonder if you noticed in verse 8 the resemblance in Nehemiah's actions with our Lord driving out the money changers and stallholders in the temple courtyard. One thing that blazes out from such incidents, indeed it seems to me to shine out from the whole of the passage in Nehemiah, is that compromise needs drastic treatment. It's not simply a, a case of papering over the symptoms, papering over the cracks, but eradicating the disease, eradicating the disease. You know, you can even go through the ritual of worship, even fool ourselves when our hearts are far from faithful. Far from faithful. Nehemiah is quick to get the Israelites back on the right path again. He organises the officials. He restores the storerooms to their rightful purpose. Oversee, you notice, by men who were considered trustworthy. Men who were kidding considered trustworthy so once again the religious and indeed the national life of israel is faithfully restored verse 14 is a very personal cry by nehemiah to god one one commentator says reading it is like being an eavesdropper uh, on a private prayer remember me for this O my god and do not blot out what i have so faithfully done for the house of my god And its services now before we attempted to uh, object to this prayer of Nehemiah doesn't it show his real humanness his real humanness this wasn't a super saint but a man who faithfully carried out his Lord's bidding as another commentator puts it to hear God's well done is the most innocent and the most cleansing of ambitions to hear God's well done Nehemiah, above all, all, had been faithful to God by his single-minded persistence, faithful to those he led, God's children. And as dear old Matthew puts it in his usual pithy way, he only prays, remember me, not reward me, not reward me. So what can we take from all this for ourselves? Well, certainly the danger of compromise shouts out from the passage, doesn't it? A few years ago I picked up a a book by the American Christian writer, Oz Guinness. Among other things, he's noted for his quite perceptive critique of modern American evangelicalism. Aspects that sometimes have parallels in the UK. As much as anything else, I was attracted by the rather provocative title of the book. It's called Dining with the Devil. Dining with the devil. Guinness, whilst uh, recognising the need for the church to connect with contemporary society and all the cultural baggage that it carries, he fears that in many cases that cultural baggage swamps the true message of the gospel. Indeed, it replaces the authentic word of God itself. Compromised with contemporary culture produces a crippled church Guinness highlights the pitfalls awaiting church growth and mega church movements in America in their rush for contemporary relevance where one widely acknowledged maxim that he came across was the audience, not the message, is sovereign. This is what he says. It is perfectly legitimate to convey the gospel in cartoons to a non-literary generation incapable of rising above MTV and USA Today. But five years later, if the new disciples are truly one for Christ, they will be reading and understand Paul's letter to the Romans and not simply the gospel according to peanuts. But compromise, you know, is not just a danger for churches, but clearly for individuals as well. We see illustrated, don't we, in that passage. Again, to quote Guinness, compromise is compromise, regardless of when, how or why it happens. Though certainly there are qualifications. Thus Christian compromise with the world is usually unconscious and not deliberate. It can be a matter of lifestyle as easily as belief. You know, we can dine with the devil, even when we may only see him as an angel of light as Paul puts it. But whilst our passage focuses very much on compromise, it also highlights yet again the unique and exclusive position of the Word of God as the absolute guide, the absolute guide to faith and practice. Do you use your sat in the car, I wonder, when going on a journey that you're not particularly familiar with? We do, but Jean will tell you that sometimes I think I know better than the instructions. <laughs> I'm, instructions that I'm being told on the satnav. Uh, from the smiles, I guess one or two of you might have been like that as well. My experience is that when I do that, we end up in all sorts of problems. There's a recent journey that we had to South, South London, uh, showed me coming home, ignoring the Satnav, what the Satnav was telling me, because I thought I knew better, we got lost. We got lost. You know, every time the actual word of God was read to the children of Israel in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, they returned to travelling in the right direction. They returned to travelling in the right direction. So came an outpouring of spiritual cleansing, of revival, of restoration, of sincere worship. And a genuine and sincere desire to honour God in all aspects of life. And how often this expressed itself in celebration and a joyful outpouring, rejoicing that could be heard far away, rejoicing that could be heard far away. You know, we can ever never overstate the supreme importance and authority and all sufficiency of God's word. Many people here uh, will remember dear Dermot Macdonald. He was uh, surely remembered by many of us with great affection and gratitude. He, in fact, was our first uh, moderator here, and then with Anne he joined the church uh, uh, as members he wrote numerous books he was vice-principal of London Bible College later uh, London School of Theology he was a visiting lecturer in America and in other parts of this country as well and amongst the numerous books that he wrote one was about the Bible in fact it was called the Bible I suspect several of you may have a copy as you would expect, I could have quoted several uh, passages from, from that book, but I'd use, use just one. God may have more light to break forth from his word, but he is no more light to give apart from his word. We can never grow beyond these everlasting words. We can only grow into them more deeply. And that, it seems to me, Is an exhortation that all of us can take to heart. As the children of Israel absorbed God's word, so they returned to faithfulness. As we absorb God's everlasting words, as we grow more deeply into them, so we will shun all forms of compromise and grow in love and faithfulness to a God, to a God who loves us with an everlasting and an unfailing love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Nehemiah and his faithfulness to you. And dear Lord, may we learn from it. Lord, help us to uh, not get involved in any form of compromise, but to live faithfully to you, Uh, to be constant in prayer, as Nehemiah was, and in your word as well. And so we ask that you will speak to us through what you have said, through your word, for we ask it in and through our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.